Who needs Christmas? It's an interesting question, isn't it? That with all the craziness and busyness of traditions and events and stress that can come with Christmas, that can become a question that all of us ask at times. Like, do we really need Christmas? And here's the thing. No one, no one needs the stress or the busyness or the tension that, so, that can so often accompany Christmas, but we still need Christmas. There is still a need for Christmas. And so we began to ask the question last week, who actually does need Christmas? And as we began asking that question last week, the amazing answer is that the world needed and still needs Christmas. The world needed Christmas and the world still needs Christmas. The, that the whole world needed to be blessed. And so the whole world needed a blessing and God sent a blessing at Christmas. And in remarkable fashion, what God began 2,090 years before Christmas, he fulfilled with the events of Jesus's birth and Jesus's arrival. So the world would see that God keeps his promises, that God is active and that God is faithful to finish what he starts. So the world needed Christmas. But as we alluded to, as we closed out last week, the world wasn't the only one who needed Christmas. God needed Christmas as well. See, throughout the whole 2,000 year span of time, from the very beginning of when the promise was made, God was clear that Abraham, who received the promise, would not be around when the promise was finally fulfilled. Lots of people, in fact, would not be around when the promise was fulfilled. Lots of people who believed and received that promise would not be around for the fulfillment because, after all, it took 2,000 years to fully fulfill the promise. And over 2,000 years' time, People's trust in God ebbed and flowed as life's goodness ebbed and flowed. During the times when things were working out for their benefit and for the benefit of the nation of Israel, it was easy to trust God. And during the times when things were not working out for their benefit, it became increasingly difficult to trust in God. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like you today? Does that sound like the world today? That when things are going well, it's like, yay, God. And when things take a turn for the worst, we're like, where's God? That, that, that our trust in God and our ability to see and experience God tends to ebb and flow with the goodness of life. And into that dynamic, I believe we get a glimpse at just how much our Heavenly Father really is our Heavenly Father how much our Heavenly Father really is a parent as, as, as He views us. See, parents watching this, you've had this moment with your kids at some point where you look at your kids, and maybe it's a moment of frustration, maybe it's a moment of just incredible compassion and love, but you look at your kids and you think, if they only knew how much I love them, how I feel about them, and how much I constantly have their good and their best interests in mind, their trust in me, their willingness to trust me, it would never waver. If they knew, if they could really get a glimpse of how much I love them, how much I care about them, how much I think about them, and how much I think about their best interests in mind, they would trust me in every thing. They would trust through the good times and through the not so good. They would trust when life is easy and when life is hard. They would trust when things go their way and when things don't go their way. They would, they would continually trust in me. If they knew how much I love them, they would trust me completely. And if you've, if you've ever wondered why, if you've wondered why I would say that God needed Christmas, because can God really like have a need? That is how God feels 
toward us. That is how God feels towards you. That God does love us with a never-ending love. That God does continually have our best interest at his heart and in his mind. And because God wanted us to know that about him so that we would trust him, God needed a way to get that incredible message to us. Because the question is, well, how would God or how would his spirit communicate love and concern to a material world absorbed with itself? How would God do that? How would God get that message across? And the answer is Christmas. Now, starting today with a passage that we briefly read last week, the Apostle Paul, who grew up as a Pharisee and grew up with some incredibly clear expectations about what it would look like when that 2,000-year-old promise was finally fulfilled, he eventually had this aha moment where he realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. And he would spend the rest of his life traveling and preaching and arguing to convince people that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of the promise to fulfill God's purpose. He he, he spent his entire life trying to convince people that Jesus is the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the promise to fulfill God's purpose. That Jesus was the, that every bit of the promise was fulfilled in Jesus, not just so that God could fulfill his promise, but so that God could accomplish his purpose to bless the whole world. And he wrote this incredible passage again that we began reading last week in Galatians chapter 4, clarifying exactly what God's purpose was in fulfilling that promise. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the set time had fully Come When the set time had fully come last week, I highlighted why culturally this was the right time. Because travel and communication across the whole world, uh, whole known world was finally a reality. This message of what happened at Christmas would not be lost in the middle of nowhere. And that's, in the, and that's amazing that God sent his son into the world, sent the savior into the world at that exact moment. It's just like, wow, God, like God knows what God is doing. God knows what God is up to. But along with the transportation and communication systems, you had some brutal realities of that world as well. It wasn't all just, yay, we finally can communicate and transport things the way we want to. That, That was great, but that wasn't the only reality. For those that Rome had conquered, life had not gotten better. Rome came with a promise of its own. Rome came away with a promise of its own that the Pax Romana, the Romana, the Roman peace, that peace for the whole world was possible when those who stood against Rome were finally and fully defeated. In other words, people living in that world, especially the conquered, were vividly aware that peace was only possible after violence after war, after battle, after violence. It was a culture that was fully aware that might made right, that the strongest survived and thrived and everyone else was left to fend for themselves and pick up the scraps left after the powerful and the influential took what they wanted. And on top of that, In the Jewish culture at the time, you have a failed temple and religious system that had pervaded the culture. Money trumped mercy. Cleanliness trumped compassion. God was valued, but the people that God valued were not valued. And so you have an empire built on violence. You have a religious system that's sustained through corruption. And in that world, everyone... Everyone was looking around for something and someone better. And so at just the right time, when the set time had fully come, 
God sent his son. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Which raises a question, why send God in a bod? Why not just send a messenger? Why not just send a messenger? Why actually send the Son of God? Because, and here's the answer, God had, this, had to send the Son of God because this was something God needed to do personally. God wanted to establish something that was personal and that was relational. And in order to do something personal and relational, he had to start a relationship and he had to begin personally. This is something that God had to handle personally. So he sent his son. What's even more interesting in this context is in the culture, this, this line it is that Jesus was born under the law. I think all of us can understand that what, what this feels like, that in that context, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, found themselves surrounded by systems where those who made the rules did not live by their own set of rules, where the people who made the law, the people who made the rules, were exempt from their own law, were exempt from their own rules. They made the rules. They did not have to play by the rules. And so interestingly, Jesus is born, is the son of God, born under the law, the son of the lawgiver who is born and lived under the law. See, God, in an unbelievable display of humility, sent his son who would live under and abide by the rules and abide by the law that God established. The most powerful one to ever walk the planet humbly refused to think of himself above the law or as an exception to the rules. So when Paul says in Philippians that Jesus did not think of his status as God, to as something to be used for his own advantage. This is exactly what Paul was talking about. Jesus refused to play the God card for his own benefit as a way to play above or, above or beyond or outside of the law established for everyone's benefit. Jesus refused to live above or beyond or outside of the law, even though he could as the, as the one who had established the law. Jesus lived born of a woman, born under the law. And yet, if you're wondering, well, why would he do that? Here's why he did that. In verse five, we're told this. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what did, what, why, why did God send his son? Why did God have to send his son? He had to send his son in order to do what laws and prophets and judges and warnings and exiles and sacred texts had never been able to do. See, law had restrained the flesh but hadn't earned trust. Messengers hadn't cut it. Messages were not received. Exile and discipline had instilled fear but not earned and communicated love. Sacred scripture had not earned the never wavering trust of God's people. And so God at Christmas sent Jesus to do something personal that would pave the way for something relational. God sent Jesus to do something personal, to accomplish something personal that would pave the way for a new relationship between mankind and God, our Heavenly Father. What did He come to do? He came to redeem us. He came to redeem us, to purchase us back from our slavery to sin and to adopt us. Adop I mean, like, you hear a relational word like adopt. He came to adopt us as His own sons. See, God's mission was personal. So God had to come 
in person. God's mission was relational. So he came to stand where we stand and to walk in our shoes. So at just the right time, as Paul said, at just the right time, God staged a demonstration. You want to know what Christmas is ultimately about? Christmas is a demonstration of God's love for you and of God's love for me. God staged a demonstration. It had to be a demonstration that would be documented. If you wonder why the Gospels are a document or a document about Jesus' life that records Jesus' life, it was a demonstration that would be documented for years to come. In Romans, Paul actually says so much. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8, it says this, but God demonstrates. God demonstrates. Would you actually, if you're watching right now, would you type that in the chat bar? That God demonstrates. He demonstrates, demonstrates. That word demonstrates actually comes from the Greek sunisthemai, which is to provide evidence of a personal characteristic or claim through action, to demonstrate, to show, or to bring out. So God demonstrates something about himself through his action, through his action. He demonstrates his character. He demonstrates something about himself and that himself was about what's true about himself is what we're about to read in the very next thing. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. God demonstrates his own love for us. See, the prophets had hinted at it. The sacred text had foreshadowed it. In Jesus, God demonstrated and documented his love for us. In Jesus, God demonstrated and documented his love for us. He demonstrated it in a way that would be documented for all of time. He demonstrated it in a moment, in a way that would be documented and recorded and passed down for years and years to come so that you would know and that I would know crystal clear that God loves you, that God loves you, that God loves me, that God, our heavenly father, loves us in the way that a parent loves a child, that he has our best interests in mind, that he has never stopped thinking about us, that we are constantly on his mind, that he loves us with a never ending love. In Jesus at Christmas, God demonstrated his love for us in a way that would be documented for all of time. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. But that's not the end of the story. In, Ro- in, in, in Romans 5, 8, he got, Paul would go on to say this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. See, Jesus' death was a demonstration of how much God was for us. He demonstrated that he was for us before we had an opportunity to decide if we were for him. See, for Paul, I mean, for Paul, when you read this, this was extraordinarily personal. See, Paul knew that Jesus had died for him while he was still fighting and arresting Jesus' followers. That while he had spent time fighting Jesus' followers, fighting Jesus' message, actively being at war with what God had done through Jesus, that Jesus died for him. That Jesus died for him. He says, you know, while we were still sinners, Paul would say, while I was still sinning, Christ's love was available for me. God's love was available for me through Jesus. And the moment that I looked to him, I received his love and I received his grace and I received the forgiveness for everything that I had done while I was fighting him and while I was, while I was pushing back against what, he had, what God had done through Jesus. It all came rushing in an instant. See, while we were still sinning, and Paul would say, while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. 
But, here, but, there, but with that, there, there, there is still a really great question. There's still a great question that we have to ask. Well, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, like, like why did Jesus have to die? Why such a violent death? Like, couldn't God had, have just sent Jesus into the world, and then, and then one day he goes to a, the top of a mountain, and he proclaims forgiveness, and he proclaims grace? Like, couldn't Jesus have just gone up to the mountain and just been like, hey, guys, just, you know, like, Everyone, I want to know, I came from God, I just talked to dad, or if you like Bethel, you know, daddy God, like, and he said to let everyone know that everyone is forgiven and good news, you know, every, like everything that you've done against God, it's all forgiven, you're fine, good news, pass it on, tell everyone, you know, I'm going to pop back up to heaven, I'll come down and let you know if I need to tell you something else. Like, like, couldn't Jesus have just done that? And I want to let you know, first of all, no, he couldn't have done that because first of all, no one would have believed him. In fact, when Jesus was walking the earth he, and when he would heal people, when Jesus was in those times during his earthly ministry, you've read some of these scriptures if you've read the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus would heal someone and often at the, at, at the end of the encounter, Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Or sometimes at the beginning of the encounter, Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Now go and walk or, or whatever the thing was. And when people, like, I mean, the Pharisees lost their minds. When Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven, they lost their minds because people can't forgive of people's sins. And they didn't recognize that Jesus came from God. But even if Jesus came from God, certainly he's a, he's a man who cannot forgive someone's sins. When Jesus tried to tell people that their sins were forgiven, no one believed him. And people actively fought against him. And in fact, that's part of the reason that they've, been, that they've viewed him as a heretic and someone who was dangerous and needed to go to a cross. That, that Jesus was dangerous because he walked around telling people that God had forgiven their sins. But on top of that, there is a bigger reason that we actually, that, that we have to understand that Jesus had to come and had to die for us. And I, I, I want to make sure that we don't miss this. This is a huge idea. The idea that God is the author of life, that God is the author of life. See, as smart as you are and as smart as I am and as, as, as much information as we all have at our fingertips on our phones and on our computers and our, on our tablets and all of that stuff, as smart as we are, we are still just trying to figure out life. We still don't understand life. With all the medical and scientific advances that we have, we are still just scratching the surface on understanding life. God started life. When scripture refers to God as the author of life, when I refer to God as the author of life, he is the originator of life. He is the beginner of life. He is the one who set all of life into motion. Things that we are just barely figuring out are things that God has understood from the beginning when he gave us life. God is the author of life. And we have to, that, that's, 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 that's point one. Here's, here's, here's why we have to understand that God is the author of life. To dishonor and disregard the source of life is to choose sin, and every time we sin, something in us dies. Every time we choose sin, something in us dies. Every time we disregard and dishonor the source of life, the author of life, something in us us dies through our sin. To say, I'm going to do it how I want to do it, regardless of what God says, is to dishonor the source of life. To say, well, I don't care what God says, this is what I'm going to do, is to disregard the author 
of life. To say, I know God says this, but this is my plan, and I think my plan is better, is to disrespect and to sin against God, the author and source of life. And for whatever reason that, that for whatever reason that is, that's in you and that's in me. This thing draws us away from God and toward what we think of as our own wisdom. And in our limited time on earth, every single one of us at some point along the way, we shake our fists at God and we tell him that we know better than him, even though he's the source and the author of life, and we are barely trying to figure out life. And every time we do that, Something in us dies because when we sin against the source of life, we deserve death. And with that knowledge, with that background, Paul wrote this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He died in our place. While we deserved death because of our actions against a holy God, because we deserve death in the face of our actions against the author and the source of life, we deserved it, but Jesus did it for us. Jesus died in our place, that we owed a debt that we could not pay to make ourselves right with God. And Christ's death paid our debt. Christ died in our place. Christ died our death, the death that we deserve for disregarding the source of life on our behalf. That's what God did for you. And that's what Jesus did for you through the Christmas story, through what began at Christmas. See, Jesus' followers, Peter, Andrew, and John, understood this in a deep way when they stepped onto the streets of Jerusalem and they proclaimed this. They, they, they stare into, in, into the faces of the men and women who were around Jesus' death. Not the men and women responsible, but, for the, but the crowd that was in the streets chanting for Jesus' death. And some of them who didn't even know about Jesus' death. But he stared, they stare into the faces of these people and they say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. And then, don't, don't miss this. It says, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life, which is an interesting thing, because the author of life cannot be killed unless he allows himself to lay down in his own life. The author of life allowed you to take the life of the author of life. You can't take it unless he allows it. You can't take it unless he lays it down. You killed the author of life because he allowed his life to be taken from him. But God raised him from the dead. and We are witnesses of this. See, Peter, Andrew, and John, they placed Jesus' death at the feet of every listener. You did this. You did this. You're responsible. People who were nowhere near the actual physical death of Jesus on a cross were told that they had personally killed Jesus. This is huge. Do you know what we deserve from God for this? We deserve death. William Perkins wrote that we, every man, every man must be settled without doubt that he was the man that crucified 
Christ. We're responsible. That whether or not we were the people who actually nailed Jesus to the cross, our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. So here's the thing that we have to understand and that we remember at Christmas. Jesus' death demonstrates the depth of our need of grace, that someone actually had to go to a cross that had to actually die for us in order for us to receive grace. That demonstrates the need that we have, the depth of our need, how deep and desperate our need for grace actually was, that someone had to go die for us to receive that grace. That's how deep our need is of grace. But at the same time, Jesus' death also demonstrates the magnitude of God's love for us. It's how desperate we are for we were for God's grace that someone had to die for us. It's how amazing God's love is for you that he was willing to send his son to die for you and to die for me. So you can't demonstrate love without a sacrifice. Love must be shown to be known. Love must be shown to be known. You can't demonstrate great love without great sacrifice. And you never really know how much someone loves you until he or she has the opportunity to sacrifice for you. And so how does God demonstrate his love for you? How does God show the world that he loves us? How does God show the world that he loves the world? He sacrificed for you. God demonstrated his great love for you through a great and a necessary sacrifice. So we've been looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But before we get to Romans 5, verse 8, we get started in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, you see, at, at just the right time, again, there's that idea that this happened at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the, for the people whose sin placed Jesus on the cross, which, by the way, is everyone, even the best of people. All of us have sin that, that falls short of God's standard for us. All of us. Our sin placed Jesus on the cross. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When there was nothing we could do for ourselves to make our way out of the hole that we had dug for ourselves, when there was nothing that you could do for you, Christ died for you. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, his unique love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. See, Jesus had to come our way and die our kind of death to demonstrate and document God's love for the people who had rebelled against him. Jesus had to come in the flesh to die a death that would pave the way for a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father built on trust. See, what's interesting is sometimes you hear this idea that every religion points to God, that every religion points to God. And preachers and people who do what I do a lot of times will hammer that statement and just, yeah, oh, that statement is ridiculous because all religions don't point to the same God. And that's true. But here's the thing. The statement is kind of true. See, all religions point to the gap between us and God. All religions point to the gap between where we are and where a God must be. See, religion is our attempt to close the gap between humanity and a God. That's what every religion on the planet is attempting to do, to close the gap between where we are and why, where we find ourselves and a connection with a God 
somewhere. That's what every religion is trying to do. And so in a way, all religion points to the need for Christmas, the need for Jesus, the need for Jesus, because only in Jesus is the gap closed and the bridge crossed to a relationship with our Heavenly Father, the author and source of life. Every religion lets you know that there is a gap that cannot be crossed by our own effort. Every religion points to that, the idea that there is a need for a Savior, that there is a need for someone to close the gap for us. And so it points to the need for Jesus, points to the need for Christmas. See, here's the bottom line. God needed Christmas to demonstrate His love for humanity. That's the bottom line today, that God needed Christmas to demonstrate His love for humanity. And so, when the time was just right, when God had the attention of His people looking for something beyond their religion, and when the systems of the world were established so that the sacrifice couldn't and wouldn't be ignored, a Jewish carpenter discovers that his fiancée is pregnant. And while he's trying to figure out what to do, God sends a messenger. God sends a messenger his way to say this. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. See, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why did God need Christmas? God needed Christmas so that you would know forever that God loves you. That God is with you. That God is for you. That God loves you. And God needed to make sure that at Christmas that we knew for sure that we were not disqualified because of who we had been and what we had done. See, we needed to to understand that your sin has not disqualified you from God's love. Your sin is actually why Jesus came. That Jesus came because your sin was so great that you couldn't experience the love of God unless someone came to deal with it. Jesus dealt with your sin so that you could know that God loves you and experience God's love personally. Your doubts have not disqualified you from God's love. It's why he demonstrated his love for you. Your selflessness has not dis- or your selfishness has not disqualified you from God's love. It's why he sent Jesus as a selfless sacrifice. So in the face of our selfishness, in the face of our doubts, in the face of our sin, there would always be the answer that God loves you. God needed Christmas so you would know and so I would know that God loves you. Regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of who you have been and who you are, regardless of anything that you've done, God loves you. And God needed Christmas so that you would know that. And God needed Christmas so that I would know that. God needed Christmas. And there's one more person, one more group of people who needed Christmas. And we'll pick it up there next week. Let me, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you once again. Thank you so much for your incredible love, your incredible grace, your incredible mercy for us. Thank you that we can know you and that we can experience your love and know that your love is for us for sure because of what began at Christmas. Thank you that you sent your son 
into the world, that you sent the Savior of the world into the world at Christmas. And God, thank you that we can live every day confident that your love is with us because you stood in our place. You stood in our shoes. You've walked where we've walked. You've experienced what we've experienced. And God, in that, you chose to lay down the life of your son for us so that we would know your love for us, the depth of your love for us, the depth of your grace for us. Think that because of Christmas, we know the depth of your love for us, that you demonstrated it for us, that it was documented for us, so that we never have to wonder about your love for us. Help us to live in that love. Help us to experience that love. Help us to, to move past our doubts, to move past our questions, to move past our experiences, to know that you love us and your love for us is never ending and never failing. So God, we ask that you would help us to know that, help us to experience it, help us to believe that it's true and actually live as if it's true. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.